Welcome to the LSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, it's great to see so many of you here tonight on this freezing night, so thank you for braving the cold. Uh, my name is Christina Musold. I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum and a Fellow here in the Philosophy Department at LSE. And um, tonight's event is part of a series of events that the Forum organizes under the sort of general heading of consilience. And what we mean by that is basically that we try to bring together people from different academic disciplines or different sort of research perspectives to talk about a topic, um, exchange ideas, ex exchange knowledge from these different areas of expertise in the hope that this will contribute to a sort of richer picture and a, and a deeper understanding of the things that we're talking about. Um, and the topic of tonight's event is the topic of shame. So presumably... All of us have been, at some point or another in our lives, be ashamed of one thing or another. But what does it actually mean to be ashamed of something? How can we sort of get a better grasp of this concept of shame? How does it relate to other concepts, such as guilt, for example, or embarrassment? Um, and is shame something that's, that's solely negative? I mean, at the, at the moment when you experience shame, it's certainly... Uh, a negative emotion, or seems to be negative emotions, emotion, but is it possible that it might be ultimately playing a positive social role? Um, does it have some, some important effect on our moral psychology or the broader political community that we live in? Um, is it a source of self-knowledge, as some philosophers have held? And how does shame develop? So um, it's often held, for instance, that infants are not able to experience shame, um, but I think one of our speakers tonight wants to actually challenge that view and wants to talk a bit about how this emotion actually develops in infancy. So um, we have three um, really great speakers tonight, uh, and it's my pleasure to introduce them to, introduce them, uh, to you. Our first speaker tonight will be Jonathan Weber, who is a reader in philosophy at Cardiff University, um, and he works in moral psychology. Um, so in other words, he's, he's sort of interested in understanding the psychological concepts that we use when we talk about ethics. Um, he is interested in finding out whether and to what extent these concepts actually apply to people um, and also ways in which our moral thinking can maybe go wrong or mistakes that we can make about human psychology when we talk about morality. Um, his most recent publications have been concerned with the ideas of character and, and virtue, particularly with whether empirical psychology has shown these to actually embody a mistaken view of human behavior. Um, and he's also interested in clarifying and assessing the theory of the origins and nature of character at the heart of 20th, 20th century French existentialist thought. So um, quite fitting for the Forum for European Philosophy, as one of our aims is, of course, also to bring analytical philosophy, continental philosophy, different sort of philosophical traditions together. Um, and our second speaker for tonight will be Vasudevi Reddy, who is a professor of developmental and cultural psychology and director of the Center for the Situated Action and Communication at the University of Portsmouth. And uh, her research interests concern the origins and development of social cognition, mainly in young infants. Um, she's exploring the role of emotional engagement in social understanding, focusing on the everyday ordinary engagements, such as teasing and joking and showing off or feeling shy and, as I would imagine, also feeling ashamed, um, which often tend to get ignored in, in the more mainstream theories. And this interest uh, in engagement has also led her to question, uh, questions about the nature and influence of cultural engagement in social understanding. 
And then our third speaker for tonight will be Phil Hutchinson, who's a senior lecturer in philosophy at Manchester Metropolitan University. He has a broad range of interests, um, ranging from philosophy of social science, philosophy of emotions, political philosophy and ethics, rhetoric, um, to Wittgenstein, and he has recently published a book on shame with the title Shame and Philosophy, an Investigation in the Philosophy of Emotions and Ethics, in which he engages with philosophers of emotion in both the analytic and continental traditions. And the way in which we'll do this um, is that each speaker will briefly, at the beginning, outline their views and uh, speak for a few minutes on how they sort of see this topic and what they think they can contribute from their discipline and their particular research approach to this topic. And then we'll have a bit of a discussion among the panel, and then we'll open up the discussion to questions from you. So please um, join me in welcoming our speakers tonight. Okay, thank you very much for that um, introduction. Uh, what I want to talk about for the next 10 minutes or so uh, is the relationship between shame and guilt, um, which are two emotions which uh, are often thought of together, but it's often pointed out by people who work in this area that they are distinct. Um, one difference is this, that guilt appears to be about a particular action or a set of actions. You feel guilty about something that you've done or a bunch of things that you've done, whereas shame appears to be about the agent themselves. You feel ashamed of who you are. Um, here are some examples of shame which I think help to make that clearer. Um, take Oedipus. Right? When Oedipus finds out that he has, in fact, killed his father and married his mother, he is ashamed, he gouges out his own eyes, and he goes off to live in the wilderness. He's well aware that although that is something he's done, it's not something he could have avoided doing. He's well aware that the gods predicted it and that the gods then conspired throughout his whole life to make it happen, no matter what he did. Uh, they would just move the scenery around him so that it would end up happening. He's aware of all that, but he's still ashamed. He's still ashamed that he is the person who killed his father and married his mother. So it's not so much that he did something he could have avoided doing or, should, or perhaps could have done otherwise, just that he's aware of who he is and he's ashamed of that. Here's a second example. You can be ashamed of things that are outside your control. You can be ashamed of your body. You can be ashamed of the way you look. In fact, um, that's quite commonly an object of shame. Again, it's not something you can be guilty about. It's something you can be ashamed of. Here's a third thing. You can be ashamed of your parents right? or ashamed of your country right? or ashamed of your religion or of your fellow members of your religion. That is still, I think, shame about yourself. It's, you, you, it's still shame uh, about being these people's child or uh, a member of this country or a member of this group of people. Um, I don't think it makes sense to, try to, to think of being ashamed of a group that you're not a member of, right, or, or something that's um, independent of you. So again, being ashamed of your parents or ashamed of your country is being ashamed of something, again, which is not really in your control, but it's something about who you are. 
So that's one distinction between shame and guilt. Guilt's about particular actions or sets of actions, things that you've done. Shame is about who you are. But here's another distinction that people who work in this area often claim to be true and which I want to challenge. They say, shame is inherently social where guilt is inherently individual. So the idea is that guilt, um, you feel guilty uh, when you judge your own actions to be bad. But shame um, requires... uh, you to empathise with the judgement of other people about you. So it involves seeing yourself as you would be seen from the outside. It's often prompted by a judgement, somebody else's judgement, that reveals to you how you look from the outside. (coughs) It's no accident that the way Oedipus responds in shame is by gouging out his own eyes and going to live in the wilderness. He doesn't want to be seen from the outside by himself or by anybody else. And that's not uncommon. Shame involves hiding behaviour. If you're ashamed in front of some people, you avoid them. You don't go out in front of them. Okay. So shame looks to be inherently social, where guilt is about uh, your own judgments, about your actions. At least that's what people who work in this area often say. But I'm not convinced. I mean, I think that might be true at a superficial level, but at a deeper level, it's exactly the other way round. I think um, that guilt is inherently social, and shame is inherently individual. Here's why. Here's the basic reason why I want to say this. I think guilt can be expunged by being forgiven, but shame can't. What do I mean by that? By expunged, I don't just mean psychologically. I don't just mean that if somebody says they forgive you, then as a matter of fact, you might not feel guilty anymore. I mean something more normative. Someone's forgiveness makes guilt, the feeling of guilt, no longer justified, no longer warranted. It's no longer right to feel guilty about something when the person you wronged or harmed in that action has forgiven you. I don't think there's an equivalent to that in the case of shame. In shame, somebody else can help you to see that the thing you're ashamed of is something you shouldn't be ashamed of, that you're not such a bad person, or that your parents aren't such bad people, or that your country aren't such bad people, or whatever. They can help you to see that, but that's different. That's helping you to see that your shame never was warranted, never was justified. That's available in guilt too. Somebody could say, look, you shouldn't feel guilty about doing that. It's not such a bad thing after all. And what they're saying there is you were never justified in feeling guilty. But there's another thing available in the case of guilt, which is forgiveness. And in the case of forgiveness the other person actually affirms that you were right to feel guilty, but by forgiving you, they change the normative landscape in a way that means that you're no longer justified in feeling guilty. And that's what I'm saying is not available in the case of shame. Nobody can bring it about just by themselves making a decision and communicating it to you that you were warranted in feeling shame about, uh, about yourself, about some aspect of yourself, and yet are now no longer warranted in feeling that shame. So that's why I want to say that guilt is really inherently social. Guilt does depend on other people's attitudes towards your actions. That's why forgiveness is possible. But shame doesn't. Shame is directly and solely, I think, a matter of your own judgment 
of your worth. That judgment may well be informed by other people's judgments. It may be prompted by other people's judgments, but those are just causal background conditions. The shame itself is inherently just about your own judgment, and that's why nobody else can change the normative landscape in the way that they can with guilt. Thank you. to respond directly to that or should we just go to the next presentation <coughs> and I think I have a question about something you said but I'll, I think I'll leave that for the discussion um, okay I think I'm going to get my uh, <coughs> okay I'm going to wing this in a slightly different way um Okay, I'm going to pick up where Jonathan left off about, I completely take your point about um, the forgivability of the landscape, the changeability of the landscape for guilt, and that's why it's a social emotion, I can take that. But I'm, in relation to shame, I'm coming at this from a completely different angle, I'm a developmental psychologist, so I'm really concerned about the question about when does it begin and what are the conditions in which, it, which are needed for experience of things like shame or something like that. Um, if I were to pick up from there, I would say that the, 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 way, the reason shame is also inherently social is because, yes, it is only your feeling about yourself I would say, not your judgment about yourself necessarily, but your feeling about yourself. But where do you get your feelings about yourself from? Not just from a violation of the standards which you think you've met or not met, but from the people because of whom those standards exist in the first place. So in a sense, I would say, it is because somebody looks shocked when you say a word in a particular accent Right? Even before you know you've got the accent, that is the look of shock or it's the look of um, negativeness or disowning or something, whatever, however vague that negativeness is, that's where the, the possibility for shame begins. So, in a sense, where, where shame comes from is the feeling towards yourself, which consists in other people's feelings towards you, which you can see. Okay? So, and that's kind of where I would, I would say, I would take it in a slightly different direction. There was, um, Darwin talked about the possibility of shame and self-conscious emotions generally, but shame in particular, he said, comes from something to do with the way other people see us. And in modern developmental psychology, which is kind of heavily inclined towards conscious thought as the vehicle for development, that how others see us has been taken to mean how it has been taken to mean a metaphorical how others see us, right? Rather than a literal how others see us. In other words, how others judge us is a metaphorical way in the, of how they see us. But actually, what would happen if you took that literally? Can there be differences in the way others see you which you can perceive? So if others look at you, do they, do they um, uh, give rise to reactions in you depending on how they're looking at you? Is the manner of how they look at you available to people? Well, most of the time it absolutely is. If I kind of frown at you before you even realize what the judgment is or what the standards are that are being violated, you're picking up something negative in the atmosphere. So when you come to kind of infants, 
even if the adult is looking merely indifferent, right? That is also a kind of a manner which is conveying something depending on what, the, what mood the infant is in and what the infant wants from the adult, okay? So if you take Darwin's statement literally, and if the how others see us, it's the how that is emphasized rather than the metaphorical, literally emphasized, then it just becomes a question of how do infants, do infants respond differently when others look at them positively than when others look at them negatively? And how does this manifest itself initially? How does it change over the first year? Okay. Now, I I became very interested in, um, partly because I saw it in one of my own kids, and I kind of tried to dismiss it because I didn't want to be a fond mother, you know, nothing worse than an academic who's kind of trying to over-interpret her kids. And I dismissed it. The second kid came along, and they were doing the same thing as well. And the thing they were doing was something that's usually called, which in ordinary life we'd call um, a self-conscious kind of affective behavior. You looked at them, and you smiled at them, and they kind of turned away coyly, right? And it was, this was at two and a half months of age. And what they were actually doing is when, if you kind of think of somebody paying you a very intimate compliment, which is nice, you like it, but it's really rather overwhelming, you can't but briefly turn away in the middle of your smile. And that's, it felt exactly like that. That's what they were doing. I was kind of trying to think, what can this mean? And then started doing a study with other kids. Now, I'll show you a video clip of a kid doing, of a, of a two and a half month old doing that. Okay? Now, this kind of thing is a very simple version of what adults would do as um, coyness or embarrassed behavior, embarrassed smiling behavior, not awkward embarrassment. It shouldn't happen in children until about 18 months of age. That's what the sort of the general belief says. But actually it's happening in simpler ways, in, in similar contexts, but simpler contexts from much earlier. So I started looking at that and I thought, this doesn't make sense that self-consciousness should be thought of as a thought, Shame is one of those self-conscious emotions that shouldn't even come in until three years of age, according to psychologists. And the reason is, it isn't until about then that children become able to hold standards in mind, right? So how do you judge yourself if you haven't got standards? But if you come back, if you take on that additional, the first point that I made, that it's standards come from people. Standards are important because the people are important. Now, if you can't see people looking negative or positive, you can't actually see standards. Standards don't have very much meaning. So I started started trying to question this um, idea that self-consciousness has to be thought of as a thought. You could think of it as an emotion, think self-consciousness as a feeling. You don't have to think of this feeling as dependent on conscious ability to reflect on yourself or to conceive of yourself as a thing. Okay? So all of this kind of messy situation exists in, in developmental psychology surrounding um, the idea of what are self-conscious emotions, when do, they, when do they start to come up, and when don't they. Um, there's one particular kind of theory I'd like to challenge, which is that the argument is that you, this shame is partic- it, it comes up at three years because it's an evaluative emotion. And other kinds of simple embarrassments, etc., are exposed emotions, even though they don't come up till about 18 months of age. Now, one thing that we could do is, is shift the whole bang lot earlier, say that you could be feeling self-conscious, to mere exposure to somebody's attention very early, much earlier than 18 months, say two months, and the evaluative bit comes later. But the question that I'd kind of actually like to end on is, can there ever be anything which is mere exposure to attention. I really don't believe there can be. 
And if there isn't, then what we've got in hand is a picture of a very gradual development of growing realization of what other people's expressions and attentions mean in, in all their negativeness and positiveness. You've got infants who are responding emotionally to the way in which other people look at them. I'm going to shut up now and just show you a video because it'll, it'll have more meaning for you. What you've got here is a two-and-a-half-month-old. Um, she's being carried by her mum, and she's looking at herself in the mirror. When her eyes kind of meet, if you, if you can possibly turn, dim the lights just by here, it would be great. When her eye, eyes kind of go down there, that's when she, um, she sees herself. <coughs> And remember, what you're looking for for embarrassed smiles is gaze aversion right in the middle of the peak of the smile. That's kind of what we normally understand. that's not supposed to happen until 18 months of age. I know it's a very simple context. It's not an evaluative context. It's a simple attention, positive attention context, right? But it's one of those contexts in which even adults would blush. The sudden kind of somebody smiling very closely at you. So if the positive, if this kind of positive response to positive attention is happening so much earlier, what happens to negative responses what, what happens to negative attention towards even two-month-olds? Well, I don't know whether you heard about this, but there's something called um, the still face kind of... It's a paradigm. It's a study. And, the, and I did it once with my own kid because I, I didn't believe it. It was a long time ago. Please forgive me. But it was absolutely horrible. I mean, it was like we wanted to take pictures of it to kind of illustrate a book. And... Um, so she was you know, chatting happily, and you just make your face go blank. It's the most horrible thing that you can experience if, you have to, if you've ever experienced somebody freezing you out, even sort of metaphorically freezing you out. Anyway, so you make your face go blank, and she's going on chat. She does, they do this classic thing of kind of smiling and trying to get your attention back, and then they give up and look away, and then they look up and try again, and then they look away. I, I don't know how long I lasted, maybe 20 seconds, I don't know. And I kind of thought, oh, I can't bear it any longer. So I reached for, leaned forward to hug her, saying, oh, you poor thing. And then she burst into tears. And it was this most horrible experience of like, oh, my God, I really matter to her. Now, okay. Now, is that shame? Isn't that shame? Is that the kind of falling of the... She was two months, she was six weeks old, actually. It was kind of like quite young for me to be... Um, this, the, what, what, you know, what you do see in this, in, even in the still face is sometimes a kind of slumping of the body, right? It's a, very, it's a classic sign of shame. There aren't any fixed signs of shame. Shame isn't an easily identifiable thing. But you do see some kind of slumping. You do see kind of downward head movements, like loss of smiles, more frowning. Is that shame? Isn't that shame? Well, who's defining it, right? We're making these criteria up as we go along. My suggestion would be, open the door to the fact that you don't get development, you don't get social engagement unless you can actually perceive simple emotionality in other people and engage with it. And if you can do that, 
You can, and if you can feel good about it, you can also feel extremely bad about it, from pretty much from the start. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Um, well, there's many things. I think shame is such a rich topic, um, which is why it interested me so early on in my academic career. Um, and I keep coming back to it. And um, I just hope, if nothing else comes from this, that people will want to go and read more about shame. I think it's a much um, understudied concept. Um, and we can learn much about ourselves as beings from studying shame. My own um, interest in shame emerged from, um, well, a couple of late-night conversations with a friend who liked to discuss the difference between shame and guilt, um, and then shortly thereafter reading Primo Levi. Um, and having read Primo Levi, uh, particularly the last couple of chapters of If This Is a Man, um, where he discusses the shame on the faces of the Russian soldiers as they come to liberate Auschwitz um, and the opening of the truce. Um, and then when he revisits it in The Drowned and the Saved to sort of analyse the shame that many Holocaust survivors uh, felt. Um, that's what really fascinated me. Um, and then, um, being a philosopher, I then threw myself into the philosophical literature on the emotions and what I found was that um, if one was to read most philosophers on the emotions, one would have to say that what Primo Levi was talking about was not shame. Um, what he was experiencing didn't fit the philosophical theories of shame. Um, so that motivated me to write on shame, um, critically of much of the literature on shame. Um, just as an aside before I progress, I mean, one of the interesting things is when you look at um, Holocaust survivor literature um, or any survivors of extreme trauma, um, the discussion of shame um, is sometimes called... Shame is sometimes called survivor guilt. Those terms seem to be used interchangeably. So there does seem to be there a sort of a grey area between shame and mm -hmm. guilt that I think, um, you know, it's really important to to think that through, um, at least. Um, what I want to talk about today, given, given the time, I could talk for hours about this stuff, um, but given the, the time we have, what I wanted to talk about today was the usual way you find shame discussed in the literature, um, particularly when it's discussed as a moral concept. Um, and it's generally discussed as a negative moral concept from the sort of modern perspective, from the perspective of modern moral philosophy. Um, and one of the reasons for that picks up on what Jonathan was saying earlier, that there's this assumption that it's a pre-modern emotion, um, that it's a heteronymous emotion, which is the sort of technical jargon for saying it's a social emotion, that it's brought about by a person accepting the negative judgment of their honour group. Okay, so um, you carry out an act and your honour group thinks that that's a shameful act and you therefore feel shame. Um, and the idea is, is that you can't feel shame without the judgment of an honour group and without accepting the honour group's negative judgment of your action. 
or your behavior. And then the, your reflection then is not that you've just, in, in the, as in the case of guilt, that your action is good or bad or right or wrong. It's that you, that in some sense, it, um, shame is about your being, your very being, not about the action that you undertook. Um, and for those reasons, because of this idea that there's a requirement for an honor group, that it's a heteronymous or social emotion, it's seen as a distinctly pre-modern emotion. And as we move through into modernity and um, legal codes are established and the rule of law is established, then we move from a shame culture to a guilt, guilt culture. And that's supposed to be part of the progress that is undertaken in, as we pass into modernity and we become more modern. And the idea is, is that guilt is an autonomous emotion. Okay. And I think uh, Jonathan made some... Um, yeah correct points um, about the extent to which that generally accepted depiction of shame and guilt actually just doesn't hold true. Um, so that interests me. So what I then wanted to do was think about the extent to which shame is important to us in, in modern, in cultures of modernity as it were the extent to which if shame wasn't there, as one, would, one might think reading the literature, that the, the, the place we want to arrive at is a place where there is no shame. Okay. And often the examples given um, in the literature when, when they're talking in that way would be, you know, um, shame is one of these horrible regressive emotions that makes people feel ashamed. You know, somebody who's been raped feels ashamed for having been raped when they've done nothing wrong. Or you would focus on the shame of survivors of extreme trauma, maybe, you know, survivors of the Rwandan um, genocide or something, who feel shame for having survived while others died, etc. And there are examples of um, shame that we would certainly want to absent. But what I wanted to focus on was the other, the other side, um, those places where we might ex expect, or re we might say reasonably expect, shame to be present, but, which it, but where it isn't, and try to understand how that, how that might come about. Why it is that there are certain scenarios where we think, that, you know, naturally people should feel ashamed there, and they just don't. Um, so I try to think about four types of um, shame absence, I call them, and um, how, though, how one might not feel ashamed in what we might think of as a sort of characteristic shame scenario, as it were. Um, so I gave them... Um, Names, and I'll just run through them quickly. Um, hopefully it won't be too <coughs> brief as to render them unintelligible. But. So the first I called the Caspar Hauser type, after the sort of legend of Caspar Hauser, um, uh, particularly as represented in Werner Herzog's 1970s film. Uh, and the legend of Caspar Hauser is about a, a, a young man who is kept confined in a cell for the first 17 years of his life. So the idea would be that on release from the cell at age 17 into the, into the life world, as it were, from confinement, he wouldn't have, had the, he wouldn't have the requisite um, socialisation or enculturation, as it were, um, to experience shame. 
Okay. Um, so that's, that's one type. <coughs> Someone that was denied the sort of resources that one gets through the learning of a language, through interacting with people, as we saw <laughs> in, in infancy uh, in your video. Um, <coughs> so that is one way in which shame might be absent. The, the second way um, shame might be absent, I called the Diogenes of Sinope type named after one of the main figures in the classic uh, cynic movement, um, who engaged in um, some quite extreme public acts, uh, acts that would usually be confined to the private arena, such as public masturbation in the Athenian marketplace. Um, and he did so to try and prove a point, and the point he wanted to make to his fellow Athenians was that they were they weren't fully free. They were still constrained by their, their sort of the extent to which they were wedded to certain social norms, often unbeknownst to them until he, he exposed them to his actions. And, and they would be disgusted at his actions in the marketplace, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't react to that disgust by feeling ashamed. So my interest in Diogenes of Sinope here for the purposes of these varieties of shame absence was he doesn't feel shame because he's gone through um, a very disciplined um, process of um, sort of disconnecting himself from the sort of cultural or social norms that were that were there in Athens um, so whereas Caspar Hauser wasn't enculturated because he was confined and kept away from a culture. Diogenes of Sinope was encultured but saw those social norms that one, that one gets through enculturation as restrictions on his freedom to, to be fully free and therefore went through a process of uh, absenting those, um, those social norms. Um, the third way is what I call the world change type. Now, um, this sort of um, refers back to where I started with Primo Levi, and um, something like Auschwitz is a, is a good example of this. This is where you're ripped out of the world in which you were uncultured and put in a, a radically, you know, a world that has a radically different set of social norms. So to be ripped out of, you know, middle class. Uh, Italian society um, as Primo Levi was and to find oneself in Auschwitz then the sorts of social norms that um, you've <coughs> you've incorporated into your character um, suddenly don't have any purchase because the, the world in which you've been put in um, doesn't isn't run in accordance with those norms um, so that's what I call the world change type. And then the final type, um, and the type that I'm interested in and which I'll finish with, uh, with regards to what I want to say about shame <coughs> having a positive role, is what I call the object prejudice type. Now, unfortunately, this is, um, this is the one that's most difficult to sort of bring down from the level of philosophical um, jargon, etc. But it's the philosophy of the emotions is generally split into sort of two camps, Jamesians and cognitivists. Um, and uh, I won't go into any more, but we can maybe pick it up in the discussion if anybody's interested, but um, to restrict 
myself to a short period of time. I won't talk about it now. But um, in, the, in the cognitivist approach, the idea is, is that emotions have objects. Okay? So the object of my fear, the formal object of my fear is a threat to my uh, continued well-being. Okay? Uh, the particular object of my fear might be the dog that's pulling at its fraying rope and growling and foaming at the mouth before me. But the formal object um, would be the, you know, a threat to my well-being. Um, now the, the, so the fourth type of shame absence is a sort of shame absence based on um, a, a prejudice against complex, diffuse objects. So um, we tend to think of, when we think, when we think of the object of an emotion, we think of simple objects, okay, a threat to our well-being. But thinking of the object of our emotion as something that's more complex, like uh, the, life world, <coughs> the life world or humanity as a whole or um, anthropogenic global warming, um, is, a little more different, is a little more difficult because what you've got there is a very complex, diffuse object and an object that people might argue over whether one should feel shame or not. So it's a bit more difficult to fix, and that's my fourth um, example of shame absence. Um, what I want to say is that that's um, one of the reasons why we don't feel uh, shame at um, looming catastrophic climate change. And, and if we did, we might be more motivated as a society and as a global society to take the actions required to avert the worst um, outcomes of uh, climate change. So that's a place in which I would want to argue that shame can play a positive role as uh, in moral motivation to motivate us to act on something. And one of the things um, one would need to do is to sort of make arguments uh, such that the object comes into view. Um, we, you know, we bring those sort of disparate parts of the complex object together so we see the object and start to feel shame and then are motivated to act. Um, and I think I'll finish there. Thank you. Okay, great. So does any one of <coughs> the speakers want to respond to something that's been said by, by someone else? I mean, I guess one sort of <coughs> tiny point of tension, but perhaps it could be made quite compatible after all, was between um, what you said at the beginning, Jonathan, when you said, you know, shame is ultimately about the person and it's, it's not the social emotion and then um, the things that both Phil and Vasudevi said where shame is very much social, so particularly um, when, when we consider the infant case where it's, it's really the gaze of the other and the way that the other person views us and the standards of norms set by the other without being able to recognize and realize that we wouldn't be able to experience shame, presumably, right? So perhaps... I mean, <coughs> yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, there's a difference... Um, on the one hand, between saying that the that shame is dependent solely on your own negative judgment or negative feeling about yourself, on the one hand, and denying that that negative judgment or negative feeling <coughs> itself has any social dimension, uh, I don't want to deny that. So your own 
um, judgments, uh, and particularly negative feelings, if they're not particularly uh, cognitively articulated or well thought out, but they're more uh, sort of reactive uh, and immediate feelings, um, they may well simply embody uh, evaluations which you've absorbed from your society generally as you've grown up or as you've moved. But that doesn't stop it now being your judgment that, that happens to embody values that you picked up from your society. That's, that's different from it being somebody else's judgment. So it's social in origin perhaps, but not social, not maintained by, in a social way all the time. Right, and, and not necessarily social in origin. I mean, it may embody values that you've reflectively thought about and decided to endorse, or it may embody values that you've yeah, simply I mean, absorbed. Mm. Um, but that's social too. Well, that, that may be social too, but in that case, I mean, it, right, so in that, in that, in that case, we've, what you're talking about is a sort of basic level of sociality that constitutes the individual. Um, but it's on top of that level that I want to say that there are differences between judgments other people make about you and different judgments you make about yourself, all of which embody that deeper level. Yeah, yeah I agree. I think, I think what we need to do is not confuse two different things. I mean, one is the sort of heteronomy, autonomy debate. And in shame, you know, that debate is, is about, you know, the necessity for an honour group or something akin to an honour group, uh, whereby, you know, if you're committed to shame being a heteronomous emotion then you're committed to the idea that in order for shame to come about, the person who experiences shame must, must have experienced the gaze of the honour group and the judgment of the honour group and accept, accepted that judgment. So the sociality operates at that level. It's in the instantiation of the emotion. Um, one can be committed to shame being an autonomous emotion whereby the judgment could just be the individual judging themselves, as it were, um, and then talking, as I do, about enculturation and, and all the ways in which um, society feeds into the development of a person's character or their second nature, if we use the Aristotelian terminology. That wouldn't detract from claiming it was an autonomous emotion at all. You know, there's sort of two different levels there, so I think yeah, I completely agree with what you argue. But yeah, I also had a question, um, again, about the developmental aspect, right? So you wanted to challenge this view that um, shame can't really be had before a certain age because you know, shame would require um, fairly sophisticated conceptual abilities, maybe, in terms of you know, seeing ourselves in relation to others, and infants are generally assumed not to have that, and you wanted to... <coughs> that. So, um, but you said that these, these early forms of behavior that we would normally interpret as, as shame are maybe um, emotional, not conscious, probably not conceptual as well, right? Would you go so far as to say that these are still necessary precursors, though, to these other forms? So if you didn't have those very early ones, mm. you couldn't have the later ones? Or how do you see the relation between those early forms of shame and the later ones? I th well, I, see, I get uncomfortable with the word precursor because it's like a very easy thing, you know. You don't know where to put it. It's coming too soon, call it a precursor. It solves the whole problem. So I, I don't know how to handle that word, but um, I think... So my argument would be that in order to understand anything and to have a concept of anything, um, like it, to have conscious thought about something that concept or conscious thought about something 
has to contain the experiences you've had with engaging with that something. So if you want to understand, um, oh, I don't know, um, jealousy, if you have a concept of jealousy or something, right? It's your experiences of engaging in that feeling of, of those situations of it that must inform that concept, okay? So to some extent it is impossible that if those experiences of positive goodness that you get, you've got from people smiling at you or the badness that you've got from people who used to smile at you but who don't anymore. So you kind of have fallen from, from something nice to something not so nice. It's impossible that those experiences don't constitute whatever you think of mm-hmm. as a concept of you know, self or other and therefore, and therefore kind of more sophisticated kind of shame in that way. Right. So, but then someone like Caspar Hauser, to come to, to Phil's point, who didn't have that enculturation, didn't have those experiences simply because there was no exposure to, to others, um, couldn't have the same concepts then. Couldn't you have know? the same concepts. No. I mean, you could have. You, you it, it's this thing, right? You can have anybody can have a theory of anything, but you can have a theory of something in a very detached sort of way. So you can have, you can be a Martian who comes to understand human beings, comes to Earth and studies human beings, and you're. Your psychology as a Martian who doesn't engage with in emotion, emotional interactions with humans or just observes them like we observe ants probably is going to be a different kind of psychology. The concept has to be different. It's, it's material is different. No? Yeah. <laughs> right, so um, maybe, maybe to come back to um, what Phil said at, at the end. So I found this idea that Uh, about this object prejudice type of absence mm. of shame, really interesting, and also um, the sort of gesture that you made towards the very end as to how one might address that. So you, mm. you said somehow this object that we should be ashamed of, but aren't for some reason, needs to be made <coughs> visible, needs to become mm. come into view. Um, perhaps you could say a little bit more about um, how you think of, of that. How is that possible to bring that interview and also um, doesn't that then ultimately suggest that perhaps it is um, rather you know when we have to do with social objects like climate change mm. you said as an example and we want to make them visible um, it can't just then be something about us as a very person somehow something else comes in that perhaps <coughs> again makes this contrast between shame and guilt perhaps a bit more difficult to maintain mm. because it's, it's ultimately it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that we as society should, we mm. should be ashamed of not just me as an individual mm. yeah. I mean with regards to this climate change I think there's, I mean I've, I've focused on shame here but I mean there's, a, there's another there's another emotion that might work and that might be fear right mm. so if we had something like a sort of environmental Pearl Harbor that might do the trick um, But then again, it might just be explained away. You know, we're having extreme weather events now um, uh, that are connected, and it's uh, somehow we're managing to turn a blind eye and turn away because because they're diffuse and they're not they're not as obviously tied to something as say Pearl Harbor was. Um, as regards shame, then um, I think it you know what you ne- what you need is a sort of. Um, a work you need a working together you need people in different areas artists you know uh, authors filmmakers um, and the argument needs to be taken um, and the the sad thing is is that the 
climate deniers who are a small number of people with bad arguments are far more effective at having impact socially than are the climate scientists who have all the arguments on their side um, and that's, that's one thing that we need to learn from and the more those arguments get out there the more that object will stop being stop seeming so diffuse and will come into view as an object and people will start to feel ashamed for their carbon profligate lifestyles and, and be more ready more ready to change those lifestyles radically which is what needs right. to happen and therefore then governments would feel confident in bringing in the legislation that's required because they wouldn't be so sure that they get voted out right but you come back to the sort of contrast between different types of emotions so mm. you think the mechanism has to go through shame rather than say guilt for instance or a feeling of responsibility that we have for yeah i mean i mean it's one of the One of the arguments I made in the book um, was to try and come away from having to, you know, defining different emotion terms uh, in terms of ne necessary and sufficient conditions or underlying um, uh, mental processes or cognitive processes or whatever. Um, and I think the extent, if I. I think one could talk in terms of guilt here, but it would be guilt in the terms of the sort of survivor guilt. It would be the, the, the way in which we can talk about guilt where there's a grey area between guilt and shame. Right, but why is that? I mean, why couldn't I feel guilty, for instance, for my carbon footprint and for the damage you, that it causes? You could, but somebody could make a reasonable argument that might very well persuade you that you aren't guilty because your actions alone um, bringing about climate change it's the fact that 8 billion people on the planet um, are, are actually it's more likely you know, people in the west uh, their lifestyles over the past 60 years have led to it but you as an individual aren't guilty for that mm. but couldn't you, say, mean, couldn't you make the same argument about shame like, I mean particularly in light of the fact that as Jonathan argued shame is very much about me as an individual and the kind of person I am if someone then said well it's not you But that's why it's a diffuse object, you see, because you can, you can be ashamed because your con it's, it's about comparing your conception of humanity as it is to humanity as you, as a normative moral concept, and they don't fit, and that's, a sort, that's, that's one of the explanations for Primo, one of Primo Levi's expressions of shame, is that, you know, he existed in a world where humans had done this to other humans and that was what made him feel shame there's no question you know and he goes over this and over this in you know in a way that you know ultimately is quite moving to read because he keeps saying that but i'm not guilty but i'm not guilty <coughs> because shame you know shame might not be guilt but it phenomenologically speaking one experiences it like guilt mm. as it were but you know the the, the point here is is not that it's any action that you've undertaken, as it were. It's just that you're part of humankind mm. at a time when humankind is not taking the actions required to ensure the continuation of humankind into the future. Right, which sort of connects to uh, another point that sort of came up a bit, I think, in, in all three of the presentations, namely that shame could be seen as a source of knowledge about the kind of person that you are and the kind of society that you live in, the kind yeah. of culture that you 
are part of. And then once you've realised that, you can position yourself to that, right? Mm. But, but first you need to sort of yeah. become aware of it, right? Can, can I just respond to Phil, actually, on that? Because, I, I, I mean, I think this is really interesting, the, the relation between shame and guilt and climate mm. change. I hadn't, I hadn't heard anyone talk about it before. Um, uh, and it seems that on, if, if what I said about the, the relation between shame and guilt is right, then that would explain why shame would be the appropriate emotion in the case of climate change and not guilt. Mm. Because mm. guilt, uh, as I see it, is <coughs> dependent on the judgment of the wronged person. They're the person who, until they forgive you, until they forgive you it's appropriate for you to feel guilty. But the, wrong, the, the wronged people are, it's often said, people in the future. That's, that's not strictly true. Climate change is a bit faster than that. Um, a lot of the wronged people are actually already alive, yeah. but they're quite young, and the wrongs haven't happened to them yet. Um, but nevertheless, it's quite I'm difficult. I'm saying some countries have already happened. Right? Oh, right, 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 right. But, I mean, the, the, it, depend, okay, it depends on whose emissions you're talking about. Mm. The emissions that we're putting out right now mm. uh, have their effect in about 30 to 40 years, mm. if I understand the mm. science. Um, um, and so it's hard to kind of keep in mind the idea of the judgment of people when you don't know who they are, where they are, when exactly what their view is going to be, and so yeah. on and so forth. So yeah. it becomes psychologically difficult to feel mm. guilty in a sense. Whereas if shame is just a matter of your own judgment about mm. what you're doing, um, then that's not difficult at all if you're mm. properly informed. Mm. Um, so that would explain why yeah. shame. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that I, I agree that that's one way of characterising guilt but I don't think that exhausts guilt mm. I think one can think about guilt as you know I think guilt can be an autonomous emotion as well and one can experience guilt just through being aware that one's transgressed a, a, a law or a, or a social norm um, um, and, and that's where it, and, then it, and then you're coming close to shame but where it would stay, I think, clearly guilt is if you just felt guilty for the action as opposed to reflected on your thought that that reflected on your whole being, as it were. Right. So I think that's a, that's that's a type of guilt that doesn't fit with the way you. But I, I agree that much guilt is requires. Yeah. Um, Could I just ask? As a non-Christian, how does this play out then, this autonomous guilt? I've transgressed something. How does that play out between um, Catholic cultures where you can be forgiven and Protestant cultures where you kind of can't? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how does it work? Actually, because you're talking about that but as a difference between shame and guilt. I've, I've, I'm married to an English guy and into an English family and I'm kind of frustrated by it. They don't forgive themselves. You know, like there's no, <laughs> there's simply no way. Where do you go? <laughs> so maybe... They, yeah. At the same time, Catholics always seem much more obsessed by guilt in some ways, right? Well, because but it's partly because it can be forgiven. Yeah. So you can go yeah. and, and yeah. that makes you feel great then. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Has anybody got... It's a good question, but I really don't feel qualified to. Really? Yeah. Especially when we're talking well, about maybe, the whole maybe, country. Maybe, maybe someone yeah, from the maybe, audience, maybe. right? Just some. So there's a mic coming along, maybe you could. 
making amends and things and um, you know, yeah, making it right. I just wonder whether you know if we're talking about different the the different extent to which shame versus guilt, perhaps whatever they are, and maybe there's a thin line between them. Um, we're, we're held by other people's opinions for that. Maybe, maybe in Protestant cultures rather than in Catholic cultures, maybe that line is drawn differently. I don't know. Protestantism goes back to the Bible, and Catholicism goes back to the Bible. Forgiveness is a biblical concept, and I think you often uh, hear in Christian cultures that um, forgiveness is linked to a lack of forgiveness is linked to psychological problems and lots of um, different um, you know, psychological issues and I also think that shame is seen as a, a negative concept as well within Christianity because yeah. uh, in the book of Genesis it talks about how a man and a woman were naked and they were not ashamed um, so yeah, I, I don't think there's that real difference between Protestant and Catholic cultures. I think you know, it goes back to the Bible, and 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 the Bible emphasises how important forgiveness is, um, and a, a kind of cancellation of guilt. So. Okay. Good. I mean, it seems to me that this is um, the right moment to open up the discussion, right? So. Um, yeah, like, let's take the question. Um, con- contrary to what the woman there said, I think there is quite a bit of difference between Protestants and Catholics, uh, Protestantism and Catholicism. In, the, in Protestantism, it's driven by the internalization of the law, so there's no external edifice, and that's why, as you quite rightly say, that there is no escape, um, except to leave the both of them behind because they're both nonsense. <laughs> okay, right. So maybe um, some, some questions on, on different aspects of, of the presentation. So, yeah, right. The, the gentleman with the red scarf. Hi, thanks very much for the interesting talk. I wanted to ask in the context of, in particular, a very interesting conversation about the guilt and shame and then in the context of climate change. Um, where justice figures into this guilt, um, shame conception. Presumably, we're, the, the problem and the, the reason why we should feel shame is because we're doing an injustice to those individuals, born or not born, or young or not, by the carbon emissions we're emitting, and therefore they can't enjoy the good life or the same life that we can, right? So we're doing an injustice, and it's the injustice itself, mm-hmm. um, and it's problematic because it's in the future. I, I agree with that. Um, but it's that that should be giving us shame or guilt. So but I guess what I'm asking is how do we, what's the relationship there between justice, shame, and guilt, and how would you, how, can we have a discourse that, that mobilizes the shame or guilt, whichever one we should feel in the context of climate change, into one that says, well, this is actually about justice. Um, thanks. Um. Yes, but I'd want to qualify that quite a lot. Um, I think one of the problems with um, contemporary political philosophy in particular um, is 
a preoccupation with justice to the expense of other virtues. Um, and I think um, thinking about future generations in terms of care and compassion and love as well as justice um, is, is as important. And I think focusing purely on justice might be part of the problem in the sense that it just narrows things too much. But that's not to say that justice isn't important. It's just to say that justice thought of as the only virtue in town, as it were, um, can cause problems. Um, so I think we need to think about a number of um, virtues um, when we think about future generations. Do you that, want to? Um, yeah, I, I, I like that. I think that's, um, that addresses, in a way, some of what I wanted to say. I was just wanted to respond by saying that the thing about shame is that it, it quite noticeably it isn't tied to justice, right? Um, so you can be... So Oedipus is ashamed of what he's done, mm. so mm. you can be ashamed of your body, you can be ashamed of your parents, and you can be ashamed of all sorts mm. of things which, have got, which, which, are, which are independent of, of issues of justice. Um, that doesn't mean you can't be ashamed of behaving of yourself for being an unjust person. Of course you can, but um, it's not intrinsic to shame. But I guess this broader perspective of, uh, that justice is one virtue among many um, and that shame is, is about the whole self and the whole person. Mm. So it's about one's full set of virtues, vices and, and, and in between, I think, helps to explain that. So would you say that maybe it's a problem both in philosophy and psychology and other academic disciplines that we often find the tendency to focus on a particular concept or notion at the expense of other forms of engagement. I mean, it, it just occurred to me because you said, Vazul Devi said in her research she wants to engage with, with forms of engagement that are often not covered in sort of mainstream mm. academic discourse. And maybe, there, maybe there's actually a similar tendency in different disciplines to kind of... To get caught by the word or to get yeah. caught by... It, in and, in, and in particular to blend, to sort of not engage with things like compassion, love, shame, sort or of shame. more everyday kind of forms of engagement, yeah. perhaps. Yes. Mm. Okay, um, yeah, some more questions. Right, um, there's a question in the middle. Yeah, there, thank you. When a head of state does not say sorry while acknowledging a massacre and a crime committed by his, in this case, his country so many years ago, is that shame absence, guilt absence, or is it because justice is not the only virtue in town? So I didn't, I didn't catch the last bit. Or is it because justice is not the only virtue in town? What is it? Is it shame absence, guilt absence, or political reasons for which it may be inappropriate to say we are sorry? Um, I think it's probably um, bits and pieces of all of those, I think, um, because we'd need to know something about what David Cameron actually believes about colonial crimes, um, and so I, ex I ex um, should I be should I go out of my way to be really fair to David Cameron? I'm I'm not sure. Um, would it be the virtuous thing to do? I'm not sure. Um, I, I suspect that David Cameron doesn't uh, fe think that we have anything to feel guilty about, but I don't know. Um, and I suspect that David Cameron doesn't think that the British should feel ashamed. In fact, I, I, I feel confident in saying that he's on record saying, uh, certainly Gordon Brown said, 
that we should be proud of our colonial past. Um, so, yes, there's a shame absence and there's a guilt absence there. Um, there's also a bit of, um, you know, uh, maybe a bit of real politique and um, also with one eye on international law that to uh, admit responsibility opens the mm-hmm. avenue to reparations and they don't want that opening. So, yeah, all of the above. Okay. Um, yeah, let's go to... Um, Would you say that shame is a motivational emotion um, in that does it elicit reparative behaviour? And if it doesn't or it can't elicit reparative behaviour, do you think uh, what's the kind of evolutionary purpose? Why has it evolved? Sorry, what was the first part of your... Do you think shame is a motivational emotion? So do you think shame directly motivates behaviour or not? Uh, well, I mean, um, I, I guess, I, partly because I spoke about that, I guess I can respond. But um, yes, but given the right conditions, not always. I mean, just like as fear can paralyse um, deep, a deep sense of shame can make one want the ground to open up and swallow one. Um, but... Um, yeah, in, under the right conditions, shame, uh, it's a burden of my argument that shame can act as, a, as moral motivation, motivation to act, yeah. Would you both agree with that? <coughs> I mean, I think it's at also at different levels that you can think about motivation. In one sense, you could look at shame as if you're, if you're, you know, if shame is making you kind of close in on yourself and fall from visibility and fall from action, freeze, as it were, sometimes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe some of the maybe some of the effects of this are not on the individual to act, but on the others. Mm-hmm. And it could it could take a number of different forms. It could actually become bullying, or it could actually become helping. So I mean, quite a lot of our emotions don't don't exist just because they motivate us. They also exist because they have an effect on the other. So if you think about smiling, right? Why do you smile? It's not an emotion, it's an expression, or it's an emotional expression. The effect of the, the power of the smile is not on you, it's on the person who sees it. And it can be pretty powerful. So I mean, maybe shame... So it's not just motivating you, it could, you know, there's all sorts of other effects on others. Yeah, I'd like to add to that as well. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I, I, I guess um, there's another uh, aspect of the context that, that would be important, right? So if the immediate um, motivational effect of shame is sort of wanting the ground to swallow you up, is the hiding, retiring uh, uh, behavior, going off into the wilderness if you want to be extreme about it. Um, so then the question is, what happens next? Um, does that motivate you to re- reparative behaviour is what you asked about. Well, I think, I think that depends on the, on the context of your other motivations, right? So it could motivate you to reparative behaviour because you, if you want to return to the social arena, you don't want to forever be avoiding these people and avoiding their gaze, then you're going to have to do something about it. Alternatively, you might just keep running and keep hiding. Um, 
And that, I guess, depends on, as I say, your other, emo- your other emotions, your other motivations, and, and, and so forth. Um, yeah. Okay, there's two questions here. So the, the lady in red and blue, and then afterwards we'll get to you. Um, my name is uh, Anja Kromberg, and I'm the editor-in-chief of a journal that deals with dress called Vestoy. And our current issue actually deals with the connection between fashion and shame. And uh, when we started uh, working on the issue, uh, one of the first things that we were thinking about, just like someone mentioned earlier, was the, the interesting connection that comes from the symbolic birth of uh, mankind and the creation myth. So the idea that there's a very distinct connection between consciousness or self-consciousness, shame, and clothing. So I wanted to ask um, all of you a bit, um, if you could talk a little bit more about why you think this connection still today seems so important, why we feel Mm -hmm. still so much shame in connection with our bodies, and also in connection with the clothes that we wear or how clothes are still used to shame us, whether it's, let's say, in a prison context through the uniform or, um, or things like this. My instinct would be to say that it has to come from, that it has to be kind of culturally propagated, but then you would ask why did cultures develop that in the first place? But I suppose different cultures do, do handle bodies in slightly different ways. So we've become used to this kind of clothed cultures, but you, have, you do have cultures where the body per se and covering the body is not necessary to feel okay. It's not necessarily to, um, to not feel shame, if you, if you get what I mean. Yeah, so my, my, my gut feeling would be to feel ashamed of nakedness has to be a reflection of how other people see you. There can't be any other way. But then you come up with interesting things like Seeking privacy for bodily functions is kids. I, I, I mean, I keep dying to do research on this, but it just does seem rather weird. You know, doing a poo, right? Kids kind of. I don't know whether all kids do it. Some kids certainly they go. It's not before anybody's told them. You know, shut the door or whatever. They go away to be quiet and do it alone. And then I think, hmm, you know, well. There is something going on there. And maybe there are differences in, uh, in different species of animals as well, between like herd animals and which don't care, um, and non-herd animals, which kind of do seek privacy for bodily functions. So I, I think it may be a mixture of other people looking negatively at nakedness and something more primitive. Yeah, I, I, I would go along with that. I think... Um uh, and this puts me in mind as well of, of what Phil was saying earlier about Diogenes too. I mean, I think there are plenty of things uh, which we do behind closed doors that we wouldn't do in public. Um, but it doesn't follow that those things, we, we're ashamed of those things themselves, that we find them shameful. Mm. We find it shameful to do them in public, but we don't find them themselves shameful. We find them embarrassing, perhaps, and that's why we don't want to do them in public. But embarrassment isn't the same thing as shame. So it might be that what we find shameful is being the sort of person who's not embarrassed by those things when people expect you to be embarrassed by them. But the things themselves we simply find embarrassing, not shameful. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I agree as well. Um, and just to pick up on that point, I think, you know, what's key in the case of Diogenes is that what he's concerned with is not... What's key to him is not absenting the embarrassment for being naked and engaging in autoerotic acts in the Athenian marketplace, but not reacting to the disgust directed at him by his fellow Athenians mm. by feeling shame in response to their disgust. So he's basically cut the, cut the ties between the judgments of his honour group and him. Um, so I think that's key. Uh, I mean, in this, this is something I discussed with my um, students, the uh, thing about um, nakedness um, and different cultures. And um, the tendency is to think of cultures where they just don't wear any clothes at any point. But I think the interesting case for somebody who's British is Finland. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, the whole sauna culture and things like that. And, and, you know, nakedness just isn't something to either feel embarrassed about or ashamed of. Um, and, and while in, in many contexts... You know, it doesn't seem any different to Britain because people wear clothes, but that's just because it's cold there, right? It's not the sort of climate to uh, walk around naked. Um, but when it comes to their relationship to naked bodies, it's just completely different. And so I, I just think it's a, you know, it's maybe it's an anthropological question. I mean, I always wonder that you know, it's perfectly acceptable to go to the beach hardly wearing anything, mm. right? And if you wore the same stuff in, this, mm. in the middle of the city, it would be completely unacceptable, even though in both cases we might be surrounded by people. And I, I've always found mm. that sort of weird, right? So you don't necessarily have to go to Finland to find that. Yeah, no, no, it's just more, yeah, it's just more, <laughs> more obvious case. Yeah. yeah. Right, okay. Um, I've got so many questions. Yeah, there's a question. Yeah, you mm -hmm. just wait for the microphone. Thanks. Yeah. I've been thinking about... <clears throat> I've been thinking about the case in a, about the situation in a court of law where a defendant has been found guilty and the judge is saying something like you have shown no shame or remorse and incidentally the word remorse I don't think has come into this conversation at all it does seem to have a connection with both shame and guilt mm -hmm. and then the judge sort of says uh, well, I mean, he sort of implies that because somebody has shown shame and remorse, they're a bit less guilty and they're going to be sentenced less. If they haven't shown any shame or remorse, they, they've given a bigger sentence. Um, so I'm wondering about that. And I'm also thinking that here's an interesting research project. If, if a defendant has shown a lot of remorse in court, are they more likely to, to achieve successful rehabilitation? Or, I mean, that seems like an interesting basis for a research project. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a very interesting basis for a research project. Um, I think I, I agree with what you said. The only thing I, I don't think when the question is, when the question or when the the judge puts to the uh, the accused. You know, you don't seem to have shown any shame. I don't think that's really... I don't think you said something like, um, so that means they're more guilty. I don't think it's about that. I think it is about... I think what they have in mind there is the extent to which the punishment should be indexed in, um, to the degree of remorse that the, mm -hmm. that the guilty party has. So it's not that they're, you know, 
there aren't degrees of guilt. You know, they're either guilty or they're not. Um, that, but the punishment is not just in response to them being guilty or not. It's in response to uh, the extent to which we think... Well, and then what would feed into it is what, what are our... Uh, justifications for punishment you know what are our philosophical foundations for punishment is it just about rehabilitation well obviously not because prisons don't rehabilitate right we know that Um, so all those factors will come in then Um, so I think when and you're quite correct to say you know remorse is um, intimately tied to both shame and guilt um, as is dignity and um, and the concept of humanity as well. You, you know, another good research project is to look at all the, the sort of interplay between the different concepts. But again, to come back to the point, I think yes, but I think the remote the the question is motivated by making a judgment about the person and what punishment they should be subject to, not about degrees of guilt. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that, but I, I think um, there's, there's a further thing too. So, you know, the, the person's either guilty or not, and then the question of remorse comes in with, with what the sentence should be. Um, and the rehabilitative angle is one angle, but another angle is the communicative angle. So mm-hmm. it's often thought that part of what we're doing, at least with punishment, is communicating censure um, to, to the guilty party, and that that communication is only successful insofar as it's taken on board somebody who... Uh, shows no remorse um, needs uh, a more forceful communication I think is the thought I mean I'm not saying it's necessarily the right thought but I think that would be um, part of the thought yeah Yeah. right there's a question here in the front and to go back to the previous but one question the link between nakedness and shame goes the right way through back to the bible with Adam and Eve and, and, and the garden and Eve and Eden after they eat the apple they said they felt ashamed to be naked um, to what I understand the, the issue with shame is, 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 is a relationship between and the themes between one and society around them in that if you do something which is against societal norms you'll feel ashamed of it um, there was a Stan Lacoma who wrote this to say that we live in the, one of the most insular and, and, and selfish societies right now, looking back at history. Does that mean we're going to feel shamed less? How does, the, how does shame change the way we feel if, if, we, if, if we don't have anyone around us? Um. Well, I think, I think the question was, you know, as societies change, it may become more insular. I don't know what you're... I mean, why you think that society is more insular, but if that was the case, that somehow they're less tightly knit or we sort of engage in less social relations, then would that change the way we feel shame? And is is there any evidence for that, maybe, culturally? I mean, I don't don't think shame is essentially tied to transgressing social norms. I think you can be ashamed of something about yourself without any regard to whether other people would disapprove of it. I, I can't see that that's contradictory. It might be psychologically unlikely, but I can't see that it's inherent to shame that it's about other people's norms or, or social norms um, directly. Um, th- I mean, there is a developmental story, uh, a story that's often told, I think this has come up a little bit this evening, about um, the history of shame and guilt, which is the idea that shame is a kind of more ancient mm-hmm. tradition and the guilt tradition sort of comes more um, uh, particularly out of Christianity, I think. Uh, part, of the, part of what that change is about is about um, kind of moving towards an idea that um, it, it, it's, par- it's partly tied, I think, to the idea that um, 
ethics in the ancient sense about the kind of being the kind of person that you are, so giving way to morality about the rights and wrongs of given actions. And, and part of what seems to underlie that shift is a, is a, is a, a desire to deal with um, what's known as moral luck. So shame cultures um, uh, uh, leave a lot to luck, right? I mean, Oedipus is a, is a good example. It's not actually his fault what he did, and he knows that, but he still feels ashamed and still pays the price of that shame. Um, the idea, I think, is that over... Uh, the way the culture has developed, we've tried to move the uh, evaluation and assessment of individuals in such a way that luck plays less and less of a role. And that's been part of the shift from focusing on who you are to focusing on what you've done. And that's why it's a shift from ethics to morality and a shift from shame to guilt. So that, I mean, I don't, I'm not particularly vouching for that story, but that's a commonly told story about the, about the kind of ethical development from the ancient world to the modern world. Um, so that might, in a way, not so much about it being a more insular culture or people being more isolated from society, but rather just that shift from, from um, focusing on who you are to focusing on what you've done might, might, might be the, uh, a reason why we feel shame less and guilt more. Right, OK, um, question here. A judge in a court of law might give a, a more severe sentence to a convict who shows no shame. That suggests that shame is a secretive emotion. It's always trying to conceal its own existence. And I think it's useful to connect that with global warming. And in particular, that rich and powerful people exhibiting of sh sh rich and powerful people having very large carbon footprints, they do sh they they do have shame. They are they do feel shame, but they they keep it a secret. Unlike most other people, do, do does the panel agree with that? Um. Well, I would say um, I don't feel confident in making a general claim, a claim about what rich and powerful people um, think. Um, maybe some of them do, and you know, I, I think yes, people do engage in uh, practices of suppressing any shame they might feel, and I would imagine that they'll involve some sort of, um, you know, complex sort of mechanisms of denial, uh, where they convince themselves that you know, uh, sort of self-delusion, where they'll convince themselves, even though they know that they're living a carbon-profligate, unsustainable lifestyle that will result in deaths of future generations, they will engage in some practices that will enable them to um, deny that to themselves. Um, but I think a lot of them, you know, one can select what one reads and what arguments one exposes oneself to. And also, let's not forget, you know, the it's not difficult to think that the only story in town is the story that economic growth is good um, and that, you know, and therefore rich people are the most successful people and the more money they make, the better that is for society. Um, so I think a lot of them will think that they are... think that they've got nothing to feel ashamed of, but they're the drivers of 
progress. Okay, um, maybe time for one last quick question. Yeah. So I should just add that I don't agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, you had your hand up for a while longer. So, um, sorry. Um, hi. It was very interesting that you talked about climate change. I work for Carbon Trust, if anyone is interested in climate change. And to answer your question, most of them, the companies that I see who are quite big, I can't mention any names, they're not really shameful. Um, the reason for that is, again, they see the benefits they brought in, in regards to how many people they've employed in certain areas, what benefits they brought into the society. Therefore, if you say to them, um, you've had certain impact in the society and therefore what can we do about it, they will always mention that they brought in employment into that society rather than climate change. And the reason for that is no one can actually quantify the impact of climate change and whenever we go out to clients um, to sort of work with them to give them that information, they obviously, not a lot of people know much about climate change, they always say, well, what is the rate of return if I invest in this? And no one can give a figure for that. And that's why governments can't really set restrictions on companies at the moment. So you need to understand that money is quite important in the market we live in as well. Although, yes, climate change is important, um, we live in a very difficult market. But I think I, I would maybe want to say that it's not just a matter of companies and, and rich and powerful people. Right? I think it's everybody is probably engaging in practices that they shouldn't engage in and that we, to more or less extent, feel or don't feel ashamed about. I, th I think that's true, but I think um, you know, multinational corporations uh, set, set the political agenda to an extent. I don't think one has to be a conspiracy theorist or on the hard left to believe the truth of that. Um, and they do produce the big uh, carbon outputs. And the political agenda they set is that economic growth is what we should be striving for. When I think there's lots of evidence now to show that steady state economies um, are what we should be striving for, that economic growth is the driver of the looming disaster. Right, which is, I think, a great topic maybe for another event. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of economic model should we be striving for? Yeah. So for, for tonight, I'm, I'm afraid we're out of time. But thank you very much for your great questions and thanks to the panel for the really great discussion.